0: Today on Blue 58, the Packers are 7-2 and two and prepping for the stretch run. As the current number one seed in the NFC, what should we be watching for as they get ready to make their final push? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. And an important personal milestone in this episode. This is episode number 362. I believe, unless we've misnumbered one in there. But if this is, in fact, episode 362, we have passed a significant milestone. So I don't talk a whole lot about my favorite podcasts on the show, but one of them is The Weekly Planet, a comic book and movie podcast produced by a couple guys in Australia, of all places. But I've been listening to that one since, like, 2015 or so. And when we started this show, they were already well into the 150s on their podcast, but we have now caught up and passed them for the total number of episodes uh, that I've produced. Now, their show is obviously much bigger. Um, if you've heard of it or not, it's, it's a huge show uh, in the hundreds of thousands of downloads a week. So we're not not at that level, but it is personally significant to me to have produced as many episodes as they have, shows we have a little staying power. So this is a fun episode for me. And also next week, episode 365 will be our 100th show of the year, not, of course, counting the ones that we've done on Patreon. So we're coming up on some milestones. 2020 hasn't been all bad. And talking about things being all bad, segueing in uh, to last Sunday's game, I feel like we need to do a little level set on that a little bit, personally and as a fan base. So a lot of what I saw among Packers media, people who talk about the Packers, people who podcast about the Packers, whatever, coming out of that game was kind of falling into one of two camps. People like me were pretty irritated with how that game went, and people who thought that the Packers actually overcame a lot of adversity in that game. And I was trolling Packers Reddit this week, as I do from time to time, and came across a post talking about how uh, a win's a win, you know, you just need to accept it and move on. And I do see what the point is there. And I want to talk about that for a second. Got to underline this and remind ourselves of it from time to time. There's no style points in the NFL. Style points don't count for anything. Getting the W is, at the end of the day, all that matters. And we shouldn't forget that, even in a game like happened on Sunday. But you do have to make a little bit of a differentiation if you're just looking at wins and losses, don't watch the game at all. Because you can just look and see, oh, did they win or lose? If the outcome is all that matters, it doesn't really matter how they played, right? And if you don't care about the outcome, you just want to have a good time, don't look at the score. But if you care about how the team is going to do long-term, you kind of have to look past the record, the stats, to really see what happened. And I think in games like we saw on Sunday, you can look and see whether that performance unveils any kind of underlying issues. And I think there was certainly some of that on Sunday. Also, if you want to talk about adversity that the team faces, you have to talk about where that adversity came from. I've been thinking a lot about that Simpsons quote from Homer Simpson this week, ah, alcohol. The cause of and solution to all of life's problems. The Packers on Sunday seemed like the cause of and solution to all of their own problems. Every problem the Packers seemed to have on Sunday, except for the wind, really seemed like it was caused by the Packers. We talked about this at a fair bit of length post game, but look at the adversity getting behind to the Jaguars. wasn't because the Jaguars were playing particularly well, though their defense was all right. Turnovers. That certainly had very little to do with what the Jaguars are doing. A fumble and a bad interception, while you do credit the Jaguars for making those plays, I don't think it was entirely the doing of the Jaguars. Penalties certainly aren't the Jaguars' fault. Coming out with pretty low energy certainly isn't the Jaguars' fault. Coming out with a poor game plan certainly isn't the Jaguars' fault, although they contributed to it by just playing whatever defense they were going to, and then the Packers didn't adapt at all. So was there anything, any adversity that the Packers okay, that overcame that wasn't the result of something that the Packers did? Again, the weather, I guess, but that again plays into your game plan. Why was your game plan so bad? Because you overcorrected for the re- the weather and didn't do a lot of the things that were working. So yes, it's true, That a win is all that matters, and the Packers did get a win on Sunday, but it's important to also look behind or beyond the results. Having said that, the results so far this year have been pretty good. Seven and two is about as good as you can get. A couple stinkers in there to be sure that Vikings loss is going to sting for a while yet. But there are a few things the Packers can still look forward to. Number one is that they're going to the playoffs. And with that in mind, as we want to see what kind of run the Packers can make in those playoffs, we should be looking for a few things down the stretch here. So let's talk about those a little bit. Number one is going to be a short one, but it's important. Beat the Bears twice. This is a moral obligation for the Packers. They have to beat the Bears. So beat them twice. Take care of business. They're going to be in rough shape when you play them. Make sure you beat them. Don't lose to the Bears. Already lost to the Vikings once this year. Take care of business against the Bears. Don't make it a habit in the NFC North here. First real one is watching how Alan Lazard's reintegration goes. So he has been activated from injured reserve. He is, by all indications, good to go for this Sunday. At the very least, he is eligible to play on Sunday, having returned from injured reserve now. And I'm very curious to see how this reintegration process goes. He is not the receiver that Devonte Adams is, so we shouldn't judge him in that light. But I think it's noteworthy how poorly things have gone when Devontae Adams has returned to the lineup after injury the last couple of years. Everybody knows he is the best Packers receiver, and nobody seems to know that better than Aaron Rodgers, who tends, it seems, to fixate on Adams just a little bit. Please take that with all the sarcasm it is intended to be taken with. Aaron Rodgers gets a little bit fixated on Devontae Adams, especially when he's been out for a little while. I don't think Alan Lazard is going to have that problem, but how does he fit back into the offense that has gotten by without him for a while now? We've talked about My theory of Matt Lafleur's offense being a little bit like a microchip, maybe a really high-end watch, a lot of intricate moving pieces. But if you get things too out of whack, even a little bit, it falls apart really quickly. The microchip can be compromised. How does reintroducing the guy who was, at the time, the most efficient receiver in the NFL, by advanced metrics, the most productive receiver in the NFL, when he went out? What's the process like of bringing him along? How many snaps is he going to play at the very most basic level? And when is he going to be back to full strength? Is he ever going to be back to full strength this year? That's something we talked about with his core muscle injury. Is he ever going to be back to full strength this year? We don't know. What level is he playing at? Is it 70%? Is it 80%? Is it 95%? Because it's probably not going to be 100%. So how is that Lazard reintegration process going to go. I think it makes the Packers' offense better overall. Pretty obvious. But that doesn't mean this process is going to be seamless. Second thing I really want to watch over the final seven games of this regular season is how the pass rush continues to improve. I think there are some positive signs here. Preston Smith showing signs of life his production ratio is climbing slowly upward. Had been under .25 for most of the season so far, now is slightly above .5. Sports Information Solutions, as of this recording, has not updated their pass rush percentage numbers yet, but those for Preston Smith have slowly been climbing a little bit as well. He's not doing it as often as we would probably like, but he is getting to the quarterback more often, at least affecting the opposing passer. Secondly, Kenny Clark is starting to look a little bit more lively. On the deciding play of the Packers-Jaguars game, he did something very interesting. The Packers came out with a four-man rush. It was Clark and the three edges, Zedarius, Preston, and Rashawn Gary. And Kenny Clark drew a double team. That freed up all three edge rushers to take on their guy one-on-one, And all three of them at various times got into the backfield and put some pressure on Jake Luton. Who, again, did not even have the courtesy to throw up the ball and let the Packers intercept it there at the end. The nerve. He still is only getting pressure on 2.6% of his rushes so far. But a big part of Kenny Clark's role is drawing those double teams. The stats, I think, are going to come. And I'm not entirely sure he's back to 100% yet after that injury he had. Those are the sort of things that may take a little bit to get you back to full strength. And I know it's been like a month now. But it's okay if Kenny Clark is not peaking in late October and early November. He's always been at his best in December. And if he can be a beast in December and January again, and maybe into February, that can go a long way towards helping the Packers defense. Finally, I would be interested to see if the Packers secondary can play to its potential over the final seven games here. Now, we didn't have Jair Alexander. We didn't have Kevin King on the field on Sunday. So take a little bit of what the Jaguars did offensively with a grain of salt. Not that their passing game was overly dangerous, but still. The Packers playing together, playing well in the secondary, is another Big thing they've been missing this year. Kevin King has been out for more than a month with a quadricep injury and I don't blame him there. Those sorts of injuries in particular can take a long time to heal. And again, you don't want your secondary peaking in October or November. It's December and January. So if you can get back and get healthy and get everything going by then, then we'll have something. But even after Adrian Amos got that pick on Sunday, the Packers are still way behind the curve making plays on the ball. Ball Hawks overall this year are down. Part of that is sacks. The Packers haven't gotten as many of them. But a big part of that, too, is that the Packers defensive backs have very little in the way of passes defensed, interceptions, forced fumbles, anything that involves making a play on the ball, really. There have been some, but they've been few and far between. That was a big part of the concern or thought process behind The people predicting the Packers' defense would regress this offseason, they just weren't going to be able to produce turnovers at the same rate, and that's true, and they haven't this year, but they are now way behind where you'd think they probably should be. So whatever is the opposite of regressing, maybe it is regressing to the mean there. Some mathematician correct me. That's what the Packers seem to be in for. And I know that's the gambler's fallacy, speaking a little bit. We're due for stuff. No, not necessarily, but they are playing or producing at a lower level than you'd expect. And I think there's reason to believe, or reason to hope at least, things could turn around in the second half. Finally, I wanted to take a second to talk a little bit about Marquez Valdez-Scantling. This is not, well, this is something we're going to be watching down the stretch here, but this is enough of a big deal that I wanted to give it kind of its own topic here. What is real with MVS and what isn't real? And what does all this say about the Packers' decision not to draft or, I guess, trade for a wide receiver? So get the obvious stuff out of the way right away. He's playing better. Over the last couple games, he's been significantly better. Packers haven't exactly been playing a murderer's row of of opponents lately. He was bad against the Texans, but things seem to be pointed in the right uh, direction. At the very least, he's being more productive than he was for most of the season so far. So what's real and what isn't real here? Let's start with what isn't real. First, the stats. The stats are unsustainable here. He's not going to be putting up 148 yards a game for the rest of the season, as nice as that would be. The catch rate is still bad. Uh, So even though he caught all of his targets on Sunday, I believe, seemed like he did. I don't know. Don't have the stats in front of me. But he's catching more of his targets. But his catching rate is always going to be a little bit lower than it probably should be, just because of where his targets come. But even so, it's going to be lower than it was on Sunday. So things are going to correct a little bit here. The touchdowns are also um, a little bit fluky here. Touchdowns kind of can seem to come in bunches. Judging somebody's performance by touchdowns is, is not realistic. Just look at what happened with uh, Big Bob this year, Big Bob Tunyon. He started hot early in the season, hasn't scored a touchdown in a while now at least not at the rate as he, uh, he was scoring them early in the season. But what is real with Marquez Valdez-Scantling is worth considering. Two important things, in fact. One that should be pretty obvious, another maybe a little bit less so. First, the speed. The speed is still real, and boy, does he have a considerable amount of it. It's always cool to see him run Really fast in a straight line. And with Devontae Adams playing well out of the slot, with Devontae Adams playing well across from Marquez Valdez Scantling, there are going to be opportunities for him to do the things that he did on Sunday. It was also encouraging to see the Packers get him involved a little bit in jet sweep action, something we've been asking for for a while now. So the speed is real and it is considerable. But more importantly and less obviously, MVS seems to be really improving in his situational awareness. Now, there's still some drops there, but he's coming, becoming a more complete receiver, and you can see that in a couple plays over the past couple weeks. This past Sunday, there was a third and six in the second quarter, where MVS started on the left side of the formation, ran kind of an intermediate to fairly deep crossing route. As Aaron Rodgers rolls to his right, what does MVS do? He stops. He stops running, finds an open soft spot in the zone, and just sits there. Rodgers finds him, hits him right between the numbers. MVS almost literally sits down, and it's a first down after he makes the catch. That's really good stuff. Finding an open spot in the zone is very much a feel thing, and if he's developing that feel, that is a good, good thing. Second play was a third and one from the goal line. Last Thursday, or the Thursday night football Thursday, against the 49ers, it was his, his second touchdown. Go back and watch what he does. He works the back of the end zone very well. Sits down, again, scores a touchdown. Goal line, a lot like finding a hole in the zone, is very much a feel thing. Got to have chemistry with your quarterback. Got to know where you are in relation to the sideline, relation to other defenders, relation to other people on offense, so you're not carrying defenders into their area. This was just the second goal-line situation touchdown of his career, in his first since his rookie season. At profootballreference.com, you can look at just everybody's or a player's touchdown plays alone. And this was just the second time that I think he had a touchdown of less than 40 yards, maybe less than 38 yards in his entire career. Other than that, it's all deep shots. Marquez Valdez-Scantling doesn't do a lot of work around the goal line. But he did it on Sunday, and he did it well. So there is some improvement there. He is playing better. He's doing things better that you expect from a receiver in his third year, and that's encouraging to see. So does that mean that it was a good idea not to get more help at receiver in the draft, in free agency, at the trade deadline? And without belaboring the point too much, because I know that can be a little bit annoying, I think the answer is still no, for a couple of reasons. First, that MVS and Alan Lazard have played well this year does not mean that that was a good choice in and of itself. Because it is possible to get good results with a bad process. We've talked about the, the four quadrants of outcomes before, right? You've got good outcomes, bad outcomes good process, bad process. If you get a good outcome with a good process, that's just how things are supposed to work, right? You're supposed to design a good process, and hopefully it brings you good results. That's your job. If you get bad results with a good process, well, you're just kind of unlucky. Sometimes that happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen all that often. If you get bad results with a good process, though, or good results with a bad process, though, you might just be lucky. And if you get bad results with a bad process, well, you're probably going to be out of a job here before too long. Right now, I think it's fair to say that the Packers have gotten some good results with a bad process. They have not invested in receiver at all. The Packers have spent close to zero draft capital at receiver since 2018. That is the Gouda Kunst era, 2018, 19, and 20. Going by the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart, they have spent a total of 67.5 points worth of draft picks on receivers, people whose primary job it is to catch the football. They've spent three day three picks on receivers. Jamon Moore, MVS, and Equinemius St. Brown. To put that in context, the Packers have spent more draft capital on inside linebackers in the Gutekunst era than they have on wide receivers. Oren Burks, Kamal Martin, and Ty Summers count for more draft capital than the Packers have spent at receiver. They've spent more high picks on inside linebacker, a position Packers fans unanimously agree is bad, than they have on wide receivers. Secondly, even if we don't know every single part of the Packers process fully, you can still identify some issues. Here's one of them. After Devin Funchess opted out, that happened on July 28th, the Packers still had options for adding talent at receiver. Free agent's still out there, could make a a trade, Instead, they went into this season with Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Economia St. Brown as essentially their top four. There were other guys, too, but those guys were their most noteworthy. And in that situation, if 100% of the non-Adams guys develop into real players, which was a legitimate question coming into the season, you still only have four NFL-caliber receivers on your roster. Not good receivers, that's something different, just four NFL-caliber receivers. And as it stands, the Packers really only have three. They've got Adams, Lazard, and MVS. As it stands right now, with EQ coming along slowly, to say the least, your number four guy on the roster is just a body. Could be anybody. Right now, that fourth guy is... Take your pick between Equinemius St. Brown, Juwan Winfrey, and Darius Shepard. Woof. You do get some leeway in the Matt LaFleur offense, but still, they don't have anybody who could play number four receiver right now, who could be their number four receiver, who is going to be a contributor in any meaningful way right now. And that means nobody in the pipeline for the future either. And what would that mean if Marquez Valdez-Scantling isn't playing as well as he is right now? What if he was playing worse even? He's playing about as well as he's ever played right now, and there are still legitimate questions about what he does on the football field. What if he wasn't doing that? That's why I still think it would have been worth it to do what the Packers could have to get a receiver in the draft and free agency wherever. At least have another body, somebody who's a developmental prospect, somebody who's not just filling a roster spot, because that's where the Packers seem to be right now. And I don't think that should take anything away from what Lazard or MVS have done this season. It's possible for them to play well and the Packers to still need help at wide receiver. You know who believed that? Brian Gutekunst. He was talking about trading for Will Fuller as far back as training camp. He wanted to draft a receiver this spring. These guys playing well is a part of that process, a part of that consideration. But even if they are, it doesn't mean that not getting another one was a good idea. That's all I've got for you in this episode. Do appreciate you listening in. If you enjoyed this show, if you think someone else would enjoy it, go ahead and share it. Uh, Help more people find this show and help us grow this conversation we're having around the Packers because that ultimately is going to help more people become smarter Packers fans, help all of us become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans. And better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Muirdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.